It's the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guests, Matthew Gibson of Syngraphy and Margaret Atwood. Yes, the Margaret Atwood. And then, nope, I'm just going to stop at Margaret Atwood. But first, your host, Jared Correa. Welcome back for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast. We're the dystopia of legal podcasts. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit Podcast, even though I've never even used a flat bastard file. I'm your host, Jared Korea. You're stuck with me because Ben Stein and Jimmy Kimmel, both of them, as it turns out, were unavailable. And if you get why I'm pairing those two, you're probably older than me. So it's time for that colonoscopy. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Matthew Gibson, CEO of Syngraphy, and Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale, and so many more, I want to take a moment to talk about the Morbius movie. That's right. It's Morbin time on the Legal Toolkit. Finally. Actually, it's not. I heard Morbius sucks, and I'm not going to go see it, even if it does star two other Jareds. So we're skipping the monologue this episode, and that's so we can spend more time talking with our special guest, Margaret Atwood. Interestingly enough, and I bet you didn't know this, she actually invented an early remote signature tool called the Long Pen, which was originally built for long-distance book signings. But that invention has now morphed into an e-signature company with a broad base of services. So we'll bring on that company's CEO, that's Matthew Gibson of Syngraphy, and chat with him too. I mean, why the hell not? Now, before we get to our conversation with author Margaret Atwood, her less famous fellow Canadian co-resident, Joshua Lennon, has you for this week's edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report. Here's a fact. When it comes to sharing documents with lawyers, clients prefer online options. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer and residence at Clio, and this is just one finding from our recent Legal Trends Report. It's not surprising that at least 62% of law firms support electronic documents and e-signatures today because that's what clients want. Our data shows that email, secure client portals, and online file sharing all outrank physical mail in terms of how clients want to receive and share documents. Today's services reduce the time it takes to get a simple signature from days to seconds, making it more convenient for you and your clients to work together. For more on how today's clients prefer to work with their lawyer, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com forward slash trends. All right, let's get it. It's time to interview our first guest. My first guest today is Matthew Gibson. He's the co-founder and CEO of Syngraphy. Hey, Matthew, thanks for coming in today. How you doing? I'm doing real well. I'm very pleased to be here. Great. Thanks for coming on. You're running this Broadly speaking, e-signature company, right? And I mean real broad. Yeah. Because <laughs> you guys have like this really interesting tool called a long pen, which yeah. is like a physical 
e-signature device. And I talked to your team like a few months ago, and I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. I'd never heard of this before. I'm assuming some of our subscribers have never heard of this before. So can you tell me what the long pen is and what it does? I can tell you it had nothing to do with professional services, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it seems to have morphed quite rapidly into that. I mean, the long pen, this goes back to sort of 2005. Really what it is, it's a printer that will print biometric and forensic signatures onto paper or any other kind of handwriting you want to send across to it. Including biometrics. I didn't know that. That's super interesting. Yeah, Um, pressure, speed, cadence, all of it. Yeah. So can you talk to me about the technology behind this? Because like, how do you make sure that that signature is viable? Because I think everybody thinks of this in like the e-signature world where they're tracking for different metadata. Uh, You bring in a really smart forensic document examiner, and they basically take a look at what's going in and what's coming out. And we had somebody come in for eight months, basically put us through our paces. And the net end result of that was what is going in, uh, which includes the pressure of your handwriting, the speed at which you do it, all the nuances of your signature get translated to this bit of hardware and affixed to a physical document somewhere else in the world. The eSign Act came into effect roughly in 2000. Yes. And we're now 2022. And <laughs> right. a, lot of th- a lot of things have gone digital. I mean, the digital transformation that we're all talking about, you know, the ease of use, the speed. But what hasn't gone away, and when the eSign Act came into effect, everyone felt, you know, just like when the ebook came into the world, that all books were going to disappear. Right. So when the eSign Act was introduced, all paper was going to go away. <laughs> and what we've discovered as a company is that paper is not going away. There are transactions, you know, even though the eSign Act says that a fax is a legally binding document, internal legal and compliance departments are going to look at somebody proposing that and go, I don't care if it's legal <laughs> under the Act. We're not doing that for our right. multi-million dollar deal. And so one-time original signatures on paper is still the gold standard globally, but it's really inefficient. I mean, (laughs) you you don't want to put things in couriers. You don't want to have to have, in today's world, people coming down and being in your office. And so we've wrapped all the best parts of paper into a digital channel, and we just made it a hell of a lot more convenient. Yeah, that sounds like the obvious route to take. So I think a lot of people think especially attorneys and professionals who are not as tech savvy, that like the e-signature thing is kind of a new deal. But there's been a federal law on this for over 20 years. Yes. And can you talk about like, I know you've seen a lot of changes, but what do you think are the most relevant recent changes to the way people utilize e-signatures? I think it's coming down to an element of trust in them. I mean, Mm -hmm. because again, paper really, even today is still the gold standard of a transaction. Yeah. Because there is the forensics, there is the, this is your signature, there is identity certainty associated to it, there is case law. And so what we're trying to do as an industry is speed up, and I think that when you first had e-signatures hit the market, which is around 2010 in any sort of meaningful way, from our perspective, they were, you know, the products that are being introduced and interestingly still being used today are products and solutions of convenience rather than compliance. Yeah. And to that point, because paper and your original signature is still the gold standard, how do you translate that into a typed signature? 
And we refer to many of the, the sort of solutions out there. A type signature is a proxy signature. It's a proxy of your signature, mm -hmm. but it has no identity certainty associated to it. I could be yes. sitting at your computer selling your condo mm -hmm. if I had access to your computer. And so yes. what has changed is, is that I think much of that was the, the catalyst of that was the, the sort of global pandemic, which was, oh, we can't actually meet with our clients but we have to run our business and we have to get things done. And yeah. so that really was the running and screaming in all directions. And you had the 100 mile an hour duct tape <laughs> that was what are we gonna sort of bandage together to solve this problem, to continue functioning, to you know, service our clients. And so yes. what you ended up seeing was you know, sharing accounts, you know, seat licenses from some of our competition uh, what you'd have is a, a law firm with 40 lawyers, but they'd have three seat licenses to accommodate signatures. So you, yes. you'd have a complete disconnect on e-discovery. There's mm -hmm. no ownership of documentation. And really what happened with the pandemic was, uh, is we have to learn how to do this remotely. And lawyers historically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, my perception is they don't really like change. Oh, not going to correct you on that. If if something is working, why change it? And <laughs> I, I think what really happened is, what do you mean I can't get in my car? Or my client can't come into my boardroom. And that was, then what do you do? And so yeah. the change was forced on them. And so I see the industry really has, has been accelerated by that, but it's also opened the door to, from my perspective, a great deal of risk that's been associated with how business has been conducted during the sort of two-year stage. You know, what in those solutions is going to stick? What's going to come back to haunt people with yeah. what they've been forced to do? I like that uh, you decided that chaos was the governing principle and then people <laughs> developed a plan B out of that. I think that's largely true. <laughs> it, it, it is. Yeah, what I, what I think is interesting is I think people who are listening to this are probably thinking like, wow, there are a lot more ways to get a signature. There's a lot more ways to authenticate identity than maybe they thought. So... How do you go about, and providers in your space go about, trying to identify the appropriate solutions for law firms? Is it based on the attorney? Is it based on the practice area? Like, how do you define the need for a particular product? Anything of material risk. I mean, law, and it's by its very nature, has risk associated to it and responsibilities and regulatory expectations and societies that are watching. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that we as a company are providing a toolkit to all intents and purposes. I mean, Syngraphy, its sort of byline is the signature company. The signature company means everything. We don't, we don't try and pretend that everything needs to be digital. You can say the long pen is digital in the sense that it transports digital handwriting, but it's a physical document being signed. One of our clients is, uh, well, a number of them are governments, you know, that can't move documents by traditional couriers. So I think that we as a company are looking at how do we meet our clients' compliance needs? We don't pretend to know what they are. Mm. We just give them the tools to say, if you want to accept, for example, a proxy signature, we provide them as well. We do it a bit differently in sort of patentable ways, all the way you know, through to our video signing room, which is you know, pretty much a Zoom call on steroids that means that you can meet high quality, great user experience with your client make them feel special without having to make them park downstairs at $37 an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and and actually 
complete a transaction and document signing that has a higher degree of non-repudiation than if they'd come into your office and actually sat down in front of you and signed the piece of paper. And why? Because we record it. And so there are tool sets out there. What is going to shake out as being the most appropriate tools for you to utilize that is going to safeguard your business, is going to give your clients the kind of expected services that they expect from their law firms and lawyers. That's what's going to happen over the course of the next sort of six months to a year. Do we continue with the 100-mile-an-hour duct tape, or do we hone all of that down into something that's you know a solid to be relied upon service that from an e-discovery and a non-repudiation perspective shines. Yeah, I think that's all great. And I, I like that you mentioned video uh, because yeah. I think that's an important component of authentication that people almost overlook. And it would seem to be one of the most obvious ones. So it sounds like that's being built into more tools, including the tools that you provide, which is great. Yeah, we, we actually, because it started in publishing and the concept originally was how does an author connect with their readers globally? And that yeah. really was the challenge yeah. that was handed to me back in 2003, and thus the genesis of the long pen. It'd be nice to see them over video, but it'd be even nicer if I could sign a book for them and dedicate yeah. it to them. And that, that's really where it started. So, you know, huh. uh, flash forward 15 years, and now we're selling to governments, you know, social media companies, to high-risk uh, insolvency. I mean, all of the regulated industries we've been replacing what we refer to as, again, proxy signatures with your original one-time use signatures, just as you did on paper. And so that's how we sort of differentiate. I want to talk about one more thing that's hmm. sort of related to this notion of authentication. And that's the fact that, like, at least in the U.S., and I know you're located in Canada, like, estate planning for lawyers has just been booming like crazy for yes. obvious reasons, right? There's a global pandemic. People are thinking about their mortality almost every day. Yet there's a massive patchwork of rules on e-notarization. There's emergency laws. Now after the yep. pandemic is kind of entering this endemic stage, like some states are walking that back. Some states are being really aggressive. What are you seeing in terms of e-notarization, how that's being used and whether you think there's a pathway to sort of a unified solution in the United States and or the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, Ron, remote online notarization is a huge growing yeah. industry now um, in multiple states. Uh, do accept it. But again, it really does flash back to what do you need to do during this window of 24 months where everyone's shuttered to be able to accomplish this. And it's been everything from, hi, we're meeting our clients in our parking lot at a table <laughs> right. six feet apart, and we're sort of shuffling right. paper across it, all the way to, well, let's use a commercial video conferencing, and what I need you to do is to tilt the camera down so I can see you actually signing the physical piece of paper, which you will then courier back to me in this sort of remote witnessing. And so you still have solutions that are being cobbled together that again, to your point, you know, are the emergency, yes, we're going to accept it. And the question is, how does that shake down? And it really comes to best practice. And best practice is something that can be played back, has a metadata audit trail associated to it that is absolutely bulletproof, mm -hmm. that doesn't permit a, that's not what I said, or that's not my signature, or that's not the document I signed. And when you're dealing with disparate bits of technological solutions to hobble something together to solve for that, then there is the e-discovery, where is that bit when I need it? 
And that's what's going to come back and haunt people from the last two years. It's like, where? Right. Wh what do you mean that video recording isn't around? We need it. And so I think that you'll see a growth in this particular space of what we refer to as a video signing room. And that's a, a patented process because of our history with video and signing that is now a heavily growing industry and application. We've seen people crawl into our space. But from a, a RON perspective and notary perspective, it is going to have to shake down to something that is best practice. And there are going to be platforms that meet those needs and expectations from a regulatory perspective. And the platforms, sounds to me, would have to be able to reproduce an audit trail for you. And that's one of the oh, most important critical. components. Because as a law firm, you don't want to be doing that yourself, right? No, it, this is, you know, in, in our environment, it's automatically generated everything from was the email delivered? Did they open the email? You know, was there a phone associated to the transaction? What's their geolocation? Like it, the list is ridiculously long, but it also comes down to there you are, you know, Jared's going to sign something with Matthew here. There's his face. Yep. You know, we want to see your ID. So hold up your ID, scan it into the environment. I mean, all of the tools you need to verify identity intent. Anything that's associated to a legally binding agreement can be recreated in a video environment for those moments where, you know, you don't want or your client doesn't want to meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. It also increases quite dramatically your geographic reach on client base. Yes. Which is an attractive to some and terrifying to others. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Ah, remember the old days when you could just sign something with a quill pen and a hot wax seal? Yeah, do. <laughs> yeah. There's ho probably horses involved. But <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, hey, Matthew, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. We'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then come on back for a very special guest. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Contract automation isn't a trend, it's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy to onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. 
It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. All right, everybody. I promised you a very special guest, and now I'm about to blow your mind. Not only do we have a second show guest today, which is very rare in itself, but our guest just happens to be Margaret Atwood, author of The Handmaid's Tale, as well as other notable works of art. Margaret, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm great. We're really delighted to have you, and I've got some questions for you. In the prior segment, we talked to Matthew Gibson, who runs a company called Syngraphy, and they sell something called The Long Pen. And so we talked about what that is, but what I thought was fascinating when I was talking to him is that I just thought you were a writer, but you do so much more. that You invented this thing called the long pen, and you also have a bunch of other patents as well. Can you talk a little bit about that so we can keep this kind of related to the oh, legal subject matter? Yeah, am I the, am I the Hedy Lamar of remote signatures? <laughs> <laughs> I should say so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it all happened in a pretty ridiculous way, as a lot of these things do. For instance, Velcro got invented before they knew what they were going to use it for at all. Yeah. And um, I was looking for solutions for the book business because we knew they were running into problems of not enough writers being sent to not enough cities and it was too expensive and so on and so yeah. forth. And then the ever-present problem of finding that you're in the city in the bookstore and they don't have the books. So... I was interested in remote book tours to begin with, and that would involve talking to people through your screen and then signing their real books that would be at the other end with real ink. And um, I got that idea because FedEx would turn up at your door with this thing you signed. And I thought that when you signed it, it was flying through the air somehow and coming out the other end <laughs> in the form of ink. That turned out not to be true. So I huh. said to Matthew, so this isn't true, but, but could it be true? And he said, let me look. So they looked and looked and looked and looked and looked, and the closest thing that existed was remote surgery. Oh, wow. Where you make cuts into somebody's body at one end while you're looking at them through a screen on the other end. You have to oh do that gosh. very slowly and carefully. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. scribble on them. Uh, whereas <laughs> signing books is really fast. It's a very fast series of motions. So yeah. we went to several prototypes, one of which blew up and flew across the room, another which was very accurate, but it wasn't scalable. We couldn't make it small enough. And we finally ended up with the model that we then were able to sign things around the world remotely. In huh. fact, Norman Mailer made his final appearance from his house in New England at the Edinburgh Book Festival. There was Norman on a big screen and looking out at 600 enthusiastic Scots. And the first thing he said was, I hate technology, and I particularly hate this technology. <laughs> <laughs> we realized that he was somewhat deaf, so we turned up the volume. And as soon as he could hear people, he was just fine with it. And he gave us the full mailer. And then he uh, took questions and signed his books. 
But that, that iteration so of the long pen was was designed for a book. It, it, you had to put a thick book in that, and it had to be adjustable for height, but it, it worked just fine. But huh. the book industry couldn't figure out what to do with it. And what we realized pretty quickly was this wasn't just for books. In mm-hmm. fact, it might not be for books much at all. It could go back to being for books, and we got a lot of clamoring about that during COVID, but it was too late. It was too late. They hadn't loved us when they should have, (laughs) and therefore we were were doing business documents. Um, So that's how it all happened, and it had to be very exact when we first were doing it, because book collectors are very picky and crabby, and they wanted it to be exactly if it said, hello, Bob, best wishes and you they wanted it to look as if you had really just signed it with ink so that's so we had to really micro design it and it is huh. you can't tell a long pen signature apart from something you did in in the room wow that's super amazing and like all because people didn't want to go on as many book tours. I get it. No, like, no, I like honey, to stay at home, no, no, too. No, no, It was the publishers <laughs> who didn't want to send them because it cost They didn't want to pay much. for you. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> yeah, just get this the right way around. Uh, and then some people misinterpreted this and thought it was just me and said that I was a lazy. Uh, that I was lazy. <laughs> like I just did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I lazy, think that's really cool, lazy though. Lazy old me. <laughs> <laughs> we, I want to talk about... A bunch of different stuff with you. So can we talk a little bit about some of the new writing you've done? Because you have some uh, publications that just came out. And I would encourage people, by the way, if they haven't seen your full portfolio of writing yet, like I was, I didn't know how much you've written over the course of your career. Well, we don't want to frighten people. No, no, I don't want to scare anybody, but like, (laughs) just take a quick peek. Yeah, well, I'm really old, you know. It piles up. If I were if I were 25 and had written that many books, I think, you know, that that would be something remarkable. In fact, that would be something impossible. But it just accumulates. Yeah. So, like, can you talk a little bit about the most recent stuff you put out? So that if people want to get it, they can do that. Okay. So this is a collection of things yep. written between 2004 and 2021, roughly. And mm-hmm. uh, it is what we call essays and occasional pieces. Occasional pieces meaning things you wrote for specific occasions. And it does cover things like writing The Handmaid's Tale and some of the more recent kinds of controversies that we have had. And yes. I note that in the earlier part of my life, I was writing more, re- more book reviews and no obituaries. And now I seem to be writing <laughs> fewer book reviews. Turned and, around for you. And more obituaries. Why do you think that could be? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. We go through these phases anyway. Ah, yes. All the cycles of life. All right. So you mentioned The Handmaid's Tale. And um, I know a lot of people have probably watched the adaption of that with uh, Elizabeth Moss, which I think is a really good show. Can you talk a little bit about like what it's like to have somebody else take something that you've written, adapt it in a different medium, and how that feels for you, and like how you try to maintain enough creative control so it's still yours? Or do you even care? Well, you can't, unless you've bought the property yourself and you're a producer. Yeah. So your your big decision is choosing the team, 
And even that is more or less out of your hands because the television series rights to The Handmaid's Tale were attached to the film contract of 1989. They made a movie before with uh, Harold Pinter writing the script and uh, Volker Schlorndorf directing it. And in that contract, it said television series. Well, you weren't there, but remember what television series were then. It was Dallas. It was daytime (laughs) soaps. And it was just beginning to be many series of things like Jane Eyre put out by uh, Britain. But it wasn't anything like the streamed series we now can do because streaming didn't exist. So Mm -hmm. I thought the likelihood of this ever being a television series is zero. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So then the film was sold to a distributor. The distributor went bankrupt. The assets were dispersed and... The Handmaid's Tale television series rights went into the mountain with Golem, and were not seen. <laughs> were not seen for a long time. Nobody knew where they were. Everybody lost track of them, and people oh, would wow. come and say to us, oh, "Can we do a television thing with Handmaid's Tale?" And I would say, "I don't know who's got the rights," and I didn't. So one Jeez. day, in a fit of absent-mindedness, MGM opened a drawer. And what should be in it? <laughs> what should be in it? But the, the television rights to, to Handmaid's Tale. So they oh then gosh. started, and this was in the early part of the 21st century by this time. Yeah. And um, they started figuring out who they would develop this with, and they made one false start. I won't tell you exactly how false it was, um, but... <laughs> That didn't happen. And then Hulu, which at that time was a purveyor of movies nobody else wanted. Um, right. <laughs> let's, let's be This was frank. pre-Disney purchase, right? This is pre-everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So they decided to roll the dice and gamble. And they went straight. They didn't even do a pilot. They went straight to series. Oh, wow. And. Jeez. Uh, the showrunner was Bruce Miller, and mm-hmm. Bruce talked himself into it because he had been in love with it since he was 19. Mm-hmm. So he was, I guess, what they call a stan. He was a super fan of yes. The Handmaid's Tale. He knew everything about it, so he, he talked himself into the job that way. And then he hired really good people. And mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moss was very keen on it, and she came in as a co-producer. Um, yes. But the the team was, I have to say, I was very lucky because the team was dedicated. They mm. It wasn't just a job for them. It was something they were passionate about. And that went all the way from the directors to the set designers to the costume designers, really to everybody and all mm. of the actors who were in it. So, yeah, I've been very lucky and there have been some stellar performances coming out of it. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, that's really cool that you ended up liking the adaption anyway. I know, that's that great. doesn't always happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. I've heard that. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about this before. We are talking about Canada. We are talking about the U.S. Some crazy stuff going on these days. <laughs> and you've probably seen that the Supreme Court ended up getting one of their preliminary decisions leaked, which would I overturn Roe versus Wade. I saw that. In fact, I've written Wade. about that in, in The Atlantic. And uh, what I'm talking about is is originalism in the American Constitution. Mm. 
Right. Because uh, one of the things I did when I lived in Massachusetts for four years was I studied American literature and civilization of the 17th and 18th centuries. Not because mm-hmm. I wanted to, I have to say. I, I had to. I had to. <laughs> I had to, Not a stirring I had topic to, quote, necessarily. Fill my gap, but I'm I'm glad <laughs> now that I did it because I actually know these things, and I'm here to tell you that the original American Constitution has got nothing about women in it at all, and no yes. women had any votes then. So if we're going to talk about going back to the original, you're going to go back to a time when women didn't have any votes. <laughs> Just think about that. Yeah. Think about that yes. for one second. And a lot of other things that have come onto the table since the end of the 18th century would also be gone. Yeah, things have changed a little bit in the last 250 years or so. A a wee bit. Yeah, the underwear (laughs) is really different. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I can test that. So, yeah, people should check out your, um, your article in The Atlantic. Do you ever feel like, I mean, you've written some of this dystopian work. Do you ever feel like we inch closer to that every day with some of the things that are happening? <laughs> it's discouraging. I mean, you, you write these kinds of books hoping that people won't go there. And uh, yeah. in the 90s, I thought, well, they're not going to go there. Oh, mm-hmm. they're, they're all just Cold War is over. They're just going to go shopping and have a, having parties. But then things changed. And once you remove something so huge as the Cold War, all the chess pieces are going to move around. And the next thing that happened was 9-11, and the next thing that happened was the big financial meltdown of 2008. And then things became quite different with the reinvention of Russia, which we are now seeing played out. Right. So, So that is part of what has been happening. And... Another part of what has been happening is this attempt to move the United States back a couple of centuries. <laughs> right. Ongoing. Well, um, if, if not think... two centuries, maybe even three. And, and you don't actually want to be in the 17th century, I'm just telling you. I would not, yes. Uh, lack of indoor plumbing, among other things, would probably keep me away. So maybe the next book you could write would be about partying and shopping, and maybe that will be predictive. I would be very happy to see that. No, you would about. not. You would get bored pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Margaret, this was really fun. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. All right. Have a great rest of your day. And you too. If you want to find out more about Matthew Gibson and Syngraphy, visit Syngraphy.com. Listen for the spelling. S-Y-N-G-R-A-F-I-I. That's S-Y-N-G-R-A-F-I-I.com. Syngraphy.com. To learn more about Margaret Atwood, visit her website, margaretatwood.ca. M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T. A-T-W-O-O-D dot C-A. Margaretatwood dot C-A. Now, For those of you listening in Crotch Lake, Ontario, Canada, we've got a very special playlist for you. This time, in honor of Miss Atwood's first guest appearance on the show, we've got songs about books and writing. Now, I have no idea what Evan's up to this week, so let's just move on. And that'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast. This is Jared Correa reminding you that maybe we're living out The Handmaid's Tale right now. Damn, man, take me back to the 90s 
Where is my Glenn Medeiros cassette single? If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.